Good morning. Appreciate John reading that particular text of scripture. Appreciate a brother leading the songs he did this morning. I don't know if that was planned to go with the sermon or just coincidental, providential, you know, perhaps, but really appreciate those. They really go well with what we're going to be looking at this morning. And as I said last week, I want to kick off a series of sermons that I wrote many, many years ago. Uh, I believe I began those, I, I preached this series the first time in 2005 and then did it again in 2009. And I've titled it Basic Bible Teachings. And so we're going to be looking at, through this series of 40 sermons, so we're going to be going pretty much all year with this on Sunday mornings, we'll take a break here and there perhaps and, in, and kind of insert some other lessons that, that come to my mind, and I've got all kinds of notes on those kinds of lessons, but take a little bit of break maybe here and there. But also, we're going to follow this through. And so each one of these lessons is covering a basic doctrinal teaching or a basic teaching from God's word that we need to know as followers of God. Now, as I said, the first time I did this series, I was really blown away at the response because I thought I was just covering basic stuff. But people were so, I guess, touched by it, it, it struck such a chord that it, it, apparently it really needed to be struck. So maybe, you know, that, that made an impression upon me. Maybe we, we don't focus on the basics as often and as deeply as we need to. And so then I, when I did it again in 2009, the response was the same. Again, I was just kind of overwhelmed even at that because I thought, well, maybe just four years later uh, or so, may not be the same response, but it was virtually identical. So it's been 15 years. Now, go back and I tweak the lessons, I redo the PowerPoints, but the basic messages are the same. Pray for me as I prepare these lessons and pray that God will send us and that we will reach out to souls and bring them in to hear these basic teachings. One thing that I learned many, many years ago, early in my full-time preaching, was that most people, even who, obey, even, even who follow some particular religious group, and maybe even if they're in a church service on a fairly regular basis, they just don't know much Bible. And so what we're talking about is the very basics of Christianity, of following God. Following God. Well, basic Bible teachings, God. What is the more proper and fundamental place to start such a series of studies than God? The most basic fundamental of all Bible teachings is belief in God. Now we could say faith in God, but belief in God, my personal belief in God. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six, the Hebrews writer is very direct about this. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you look at the very first verse of the very first book in the Bible, it just does not get any more basic than that first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
right there. It starts off the first verse in the entire Bible. And God is right there in emphasis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Faith in God is where everything begins. And I'm not talking about just when we're talking about it from a spiritual perspective. I'm talking about everything in life, in the universe, everything. All begins with belief in God. And going back to Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at the first three verses. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Detractors of faith in God would criticize such by saying, you're talking about a wild wish. You're talking about something that cannot be seen, cannot be verified, and so on. You're talking about a blind leap in the dark, this God you believe in, who, you know, you say is out there someplace, but nobody sees him, nobody hears him, nobody touches him. That's all those are all statements of disbelief and lack of faith. And when we're talking about the Bible's definition of faith, it is based on substance and evidence. That's what it says. Faith is the substance of things not seen. We believe in a whole lot of things that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, that we cannot feel, such as the atom such as all of the, the intricate development of, 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 say, DNA, or, say, of molecules and so on, and we could go on and on. We don't see the wind. We see the, the evidence of the wind, but we can't see the wind itself. We can see the clouds that the wind blows by. We can see the rain driven by the wind, but we cannot see the wind, and yet we know it's there. Well, the same thing can be said about God. We cannot see God. He is spirit. We are physical and mortal, and yet we see his evidence all around us. And we could go into just tremendous detail about his evidence being there and abundant and obvious. But just think about all of the things that we would look at and say, are, are good truly good? Where does good come from? Where does goodness come from? The very concept, the principle there has to be a basic standard. It cannot be society. It cannot be humanity because we're all over the place as far as what we consider to be good or not good. But God is the basic standard. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1 and verse 17. So, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders uh, obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Again, we did not understand the building blocks of physical nature, physical material things, for most of our existence as mankind. But we understand at least to some degree now. Well, how was that development of faith or understanding or belief in the atomic structure, the molecular uh, mechanism of putting things together in physical form, how, how, how can we come and say, well, now we understand. Okay, yeah, I, I, I can't see it all, but I believe it's there because we see the effects. The exact same principle applies to faith in God. We see his effects everywhere. And I could go into great in-depth length talking about 
how he put the universe together and how it all works in such a synchronous fashion. But I don't want to get off into all of those details. I want to simply emphasize right now the basic understanding of faith in God. Well, now we're talking about a very focused faith. We're not talking about faith in some God. We're not talking about faith in some force or some power or something. We're talking about faith in our infinite God as creator, sustainer, and sovereign Lord. We're talking about God. And belief in God is the basis for everything else that follows. Let's just look a little bit. And again, if, if, we, if, we, took the t if we could, but I don't want to get tedious in, in this particular series of studies, we could go into lesson after lesson after lesson, looking into the intricate details of why we know that God is there and how faith in him helps us and strengthens us and should direct us in our lives. But there can be no compromise. There can be no compromise as to faith in God as God. Again, we're not talking about something called God. We're not talking about some power. We're not talking about some force. We're talking about God as God. First, God is eternal by nature. He's different from anything that we really experience, observe. He's eternal by nature. Well, we can understand, I, I suggest to you rather vaguely, the concept of time without end. But when you throw in that God is time, is, is there from time without beginning, we have a hard time grasping that principle, that concept. Without beginning, without ending. And yet the psalmist, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then in the 93rd Psalm, in verse 2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 106, verse 48, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord, from everlasting to everlasting, without beginning, without ending. We understand the finite, we understand the physical, we understand that everything basically that we see around us has a beginning and will have an ending. But God, God defies that particular reality. He is eternal in nature. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in him or brought forth in them. For God, for God has shown it to them. Now notice this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Invisible attributes. What did we just talk about? The wind? What did we talk about? The reality of the atomic structure, the atoms, the molecules, DNA, all of that. We understand the effects of that. We don't see those things necessarily. 
Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by his effects in reality, being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Notice, the eternal power of God is attested to by his creation, by everything that we see around us on the physical plane. In the 16th chapter of Romans, verse 26, but now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. God does not ask us to believe in something that is not realistic. God's word guides us to believe in the reality of our God eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, the creator of all around us. In, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, the apostle Paul wrote, for we know that if our earthly house, and here he's talking about, he's going through a treatise on how our physical body is one day going to be replaced by a spiritual body after we die to this physical life on this earth. And we're looking at eternity. And he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this physical body is destroyed, then we, that is faithful Christians, faithful followers, obedient followers of God, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now you can take that and you can apply it to the, on the broader scale. This physical being that we call earth is one day going to be destroyed, but we don't have to be held back by that. We don't have to fear that if we're living in faithfulness and obedience and dedication to God because Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I'm going, you cannot come, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me. He's talking to his faithful followers. We're talking about an eternal home in heaven. God was already there before time began. Titus 1 in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now, think back, back again to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We look at the rest of that chapter, we understand the creation account. And so in six days, God created everything all around us, the universe, the earth, all life upon this earth, all of the processes that go into making up this, this earth, a livable, habit, habitable place for humanity and all of the other life forms that God created. And so from a human perspective, that was the beginning of time. But look again at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, from our perspective, God was already there. Already there. And so, promised before time began. Well, God is the creator. He is eternal by nature, but he is also the creator, the creator of this world, the creator of the universe. Now, again, skeptics, deniers, they'll say, no, that's, that's fanciful thinking. We are, we are focused on science. God is the author 
of true science. And the more we go along through time and the more we learn from a scientific perspective, the more it points to God as the original designer of everything that we see and everything that we try to analyze by science. Design recognizes a designer. And so the idea that all of the synchronous, all of the interdependence of the universe, let alone this world that we live on, to suggest that all of that could somehow happen by chance is extremely scientifically absurd. That does not happen. Science recognizes that order can ultimately decline into chaos, but chaos never progresses into order. And that's what you would have to believe if you did not recognize the reality of a designer behind the design. Genesis chapter 1 lays out the design in a simple, understandable form for us mortal beings. God is the creator. Again, Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things, uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Ephesians 3 and verse 9, the apostle Paul, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the age has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. All things. When Job got a little bit out of line, after he was being challenged by supposed friends, accusing him of having done some horrible, evil thing, and God was, was, was uh, bringing judgment upon him through the loss of his, of his children and through the loss of his physical holdings and all the boils all over his body from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And they said, you must have been some evil person. You must have done something really horrible for God to be bringing this kind of judgment upon you. And Job kept defending himself. I haven't done anything. I've tried to stay faithful to God. But maybe he got a little bit out of line. If you read carefully some of the statements that Job made, challenging God, why did you let this happen to me? And then the last few chapters of Job. And here we pick up in Job chapter 38. And God goes through a long discourse Basically, fundamentally challenging Job, who do you think you are? Questioning me? And so we just take a small excerpt from Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. And God's asking Job these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the, t the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars, and I think we see an image here of the heavenly race, 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he's asking Job, where were you? Explain this to me. Surely you know you're, you're kind of challenging me here as to why I let such and such, and such happen to you. And of course, Job just, can you imagine just standing there, silent, speechless, breathless almost, recognizing his mistake? But of course, Job stayed faithful to God. In the 102nd Psalm, again, the foundations of the earth are the handiwork of God. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40 in verse 28, have you not known? I really like the sense of this, the cadence in this particular verse of scripture. Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? Neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We start challenging God. You, you can't even liken it to boys challenging men as to their understanding or their physical abilities. That, that doesn't even do it justice. We are so beneath him in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Look at the thousands of years of human existence that it has taken us just to get to the point where we are now. And we keep learning new realities and truths, don't we? Well, we look a little bit further. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by, it, by myself. I remember when I was a very young boy, maybe 10 years old or so, you would have medical science talking about all of these vestigial organs in the human body. These organs that they pointed to and said, we found these organs doing through anatomy and so on and biology and they don't do anything anymore. And those just simply point back to our evolutionary development from that one-celled animal up through the ape and so on until where we are now. We don't use those anymore. And there was a whole list of them, I think around 40 or 50 of them. With our continued learning in medical science, do you know how many vestigial organs are in the human body now? A great big fat zero. We have continued to learn every single one has a purpose. We just didn't understand the full purpose earlier in our medical science understanding. But we've gotten better at it. But God knew it from the beginning. He designed them that way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse, verse 3 again. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We understand. We weren't there, but we understand because we understand the power of God. We understand his existence. 
We understand again that design recognizes a designer behind the design. So that the things which were seen were not made by things which are visible. God is beyond just the visible. Revelation 4 and verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God is eternal by nature. God is the creator. God is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful, all-powerful. There is nothing, Jesus said, Luke 1 and verse 37, that is impossible for God. In Revelation 19 and verse 6, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, John writes, at the, at, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns, praising God even in heaven. Genesis 17 and verse 1, God told Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Abram was challenged as to his faith in God, abiding faith in God, because he told, God told him when he was about 75 years old, I'm going to bless you with a son. Already his wife, Sarai, who was about 65 at that time, was beyond the age of bearing children. But God promised this is going to happen. And this son is going to be born to you. And through him, I'm going to send the Savior into the world. But he waited 25 years to fulfill that blessing upon Abraham as he changed his name then, and Sarah. And so here, 99 now, in 24 years since God made the promise and the prophecy, and he appeared to Abram again and said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, the apostle Paul, he's writing God's word. And God says, I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord almighty. He's talking to Christians there. He's writing this for those who would be his faithful followers. And he is worshiped in heaven still to this day and always will be for all of eternity. Revelation 4 and verse 8, a picture of the throne room in heaven. Four living beings, each having six wings, full of, uh, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is almighty, all-powerful. And within that understanding and that principle, we come to understand that he is also omniscient, omniscient all-seeing, all-knowing. As we turn to Psalm 139, I want to read the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. He knows everything about us. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And we will never attain the full knowledge of God while still in these mortal bodies. But God is not just omniscient. He is also omnipresent everywhere, all the time, at the same time. And so we pick up with verse 7 in Psalm 139. And the psalmist goes on and he says, after he has just praised God for being all-knowing, all-seeing, he goes on and he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me or cover me up, but even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. The night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God is omnipresent everywhere all the time. Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 23. And here's God asking as Jeremiah writes it down. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord? And not a God afar off? There's the idea of his omnipresence again. Everywhere, all the time, at the same time. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Everywhere, all the time, at the same time. God is eternal by nature. He is the designer behind the design of everything we see, the creator himself. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. But perhaps what ought to compel our greatest thanksgiving as to faith in God is the fact that our eternal creator, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, God is also a God of love. And what he does for us, he does out of love and in love for us. 1 John 4 and verse 16 we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And here's the statement. God is love. Explain to me love without God as the basic standard. Again, as the designer of love. Nobody has ever been able to do that for me. I've asked the question countless times over decades. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. If you experience true love in your life, then you have experienced God to that extent because God is love. He loves us so much that he gave his son to die on the cross for us as the perfect one time for all time sacrifice to pay the price for the guilt of our sins so that we could have the, 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 the opportunity 
to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be saved, to be with him forever in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Romans 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ do that? Why did God send his son to the cross? Because he loves us. He created us in love to be loved and to love him. Graphic demonstration. What a graphic demonstration of his love for us. 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was manifested or demonstrated toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And we could insert in there the understanding that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is of God. Go back to verse 7 in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I had a young man come into my office one time many, many years ago. Never saw him before. Lived a rough life. He came in perplexed. He came in struggling to understand what was going on. He said, I'm not sure I understand love. He explained to me some of his lifestyle. He'd been living an ungodly life. And I can understand. The life that he lived could have led him to be devoid of love. To a great extent at least. Love is of God. And if, if, if we want to be with God, love is so much a part of God's nature that we cannot really know God if love is not central to our existence, our being, our lifestyle. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is, not long, uh, the Lord is long-suffering toward us, Patient, in other words, extremely patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is the basis of that patience that God demonstrates toward us, giving us time to come to our senses, to come to repentance, to come to him through his, his son, our Lord and Savior, to be baptized so the blood that he shed on the cross, having sent there by God for that purpose, could cleanse us of the guilt of our sins. Love is at the basis of that long-suffering, of that patience toward us. Now, if you truly love God, truly love God, and a lot of people say, I love God, but they don't obey him. If you truly love God, then you've got to come to the understanding, the realization, the analysis that I have to come to God in obedience, in surrender through Jesus. 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God, demonstrating our love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Have you obeyed 
God through his teachings? Are you living by his teachings right now? Such demonstrates true love for him. God loves you and he's waiting for you if you have not come to him in obedience. Waiting to forgive you through Jesus. Waiting to count you as his child, either son or daughter. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing.